You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this morning, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 25. And you will find this on page 934 of the Pew Bible. We're going to be looking at Acts 25, 13 through 27, the end of the chapter. This is page 934 on the Pew Bible, Acts 25, verses 13 through 27. Hear the word of God. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. There is a saying, it goes like this, to recognize opportunity is the difference between success and failure. To recognize opportunity is the difference between success and failure. In business, 
Opportunity recognition identifies potential methods of growth. For entrepreneurs, this is important and valuable as part of their economic growth. The same axiom, I think, is certainly true when it comes to matters of the soul. God hangs weighty things of eternity on the threads of times and seasons, and particularly opportunities. And we have to recognize the opportunities that meet us or risk total ruin. In the text, I think we see a situation in which God provided important opportunities. On the one hand, the opportunity of salvation to some nobles of the Roman Empire. On the other hand, the opportunity of sanctification to the Apostle Paul himself. Two amazing opportunities. Recognizing each is the difference between spiritual success and failure. So we find again Paul testifying of Christ and making a defense of the faith. And on this occasion, he's making his apology before Herod Agrippa II. He was the son of Herod Agrippa I, who, was mar who martyred the Apostle James. He was also the great-grandson of Herod the Great. You remember him at Jesus' birth, who slaughtered all the children. Agrippa II ruled various territories at different times in the first century, and his constant companion for many years was his younger sister, Bernice. And it was widely rumored in the ancient equivalent of the Inquirer that they had maintained an incestuous relationship. But whatever the nature of their relationship, they were far from models of virtue. Herod Agrippa II was considered to be something of an expert in Jewish matters. The Romans had granted him custody of the high priestly ceremonial garments. That was a huge responsibility. These were the splendorous garments to be worn on the very day of atonement. And they also gave him the authority to appoint the high priest himself. So Festus obviously thought that <clears throat> the king was in a position to offer him counsel. And when he and Bernice arrived in Caesarea, Festus solicited Agrippa's advice. Makes sense to me. What transpires in this text, I think, can hardly be considered a formal trial. He had no judicial authority, but this was an informal investigation to help this provincial governor write his report. He knew it would be silly to send the emperor a prisoner without any charges. So they investigated. Perhaps King Agrippa could help him figure out exactly what to write. And on the day appointed, Agrippa and Bernice arrive with great pomp. While merely an investigation, this meeting was not unimportant because its significance is highlighted by the grand pageantry of the occasion. Its significance is indicated by this couple parading into the audience hall, trailed by high-ranking officials. And in attendance were many distinguished visitors from military and the civil establishment, tribunes, politicians, leading figures of Caesarea. Everyone wanted to be seen by and with the king. The ancient equivalent of photo ops, I think. All in all, there was on this day a grand display of human splendor and hubris. 
And at the conclusion of all this pomp, Festus summons Paul the prisoner. Here he is, according to prophecy, standing before all the important people. And in the eyes of the world, those assembled were considered a distinguished group. And yet their outward splendor, I think, obscured the reality of their inward depravity. For the most part, they were totally unconcerned about the matters of eternity. When confronted with the gospel, most, if not all, of them would reject the offer. (laughs) And the significance of this meeting would be weighty and far-reaching, because from the world's perspective, Paul was honored to be in the presence of the king. But from the perspective of eternity, Agrippa was honored to be in the presence of Paul. The king would have an occasion to hear the gospel offer from the lips of an apostle. Their lives would intersect, their paths would cross, and for each it would be an opportunity. Agrippa and the others with him were given the opportunity to meet the greatest missionary of all time. Can you imagine that? Having Paul right before you. Better yet, they would hear the terms of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul would tell them about Christ and his cross and his resurrection. And the offer of redemption would be given to them free of charge. Jesus said many prophets and righteous people long to see and hear what they would see and hear. And for his part, Paul was afforded the opportunity through suffering to be further sanctified. He knew the the importance of afflictions for spiritual growth. If anybody knew, Paul knew. And the whole experience was intended by God to build Paul's character even further. So in the time that remains, let's consider these two opportunities. Agrippa and the nobles were given the opportunity of a lifetime to respond to the offer of the gospel. Do you see how God hangs the weighty things of eternity on the threads of time and seasons and opportunities? An opportunity seized or missed in a day could be the cause of joy or misery for eternity. No one is given an unlimited number of opportunities to be saved by grace. No one. When those opportunities run out, the door of salvation shuts, the season of grace comes to an end. And it's usually not too often that a person can transact the important and weighty affairs of the soul on a daily basis. Life creeps in, it's busy. The demands of life are many. And so God gives us a limited number of times and seasons for embracing the gospel. That's why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3, there is a time to seek. That is the time when a sinner, and you and I are both sinners, that's the time when a sinner must apply Christ to his or her soul if he or she is going to escape Wrath. I hate to say it that way, but it's true. There's a saying, 
The time to make hay is when the sun shines. You've heard that, especially if you're a farmer. The time to make hay is when the sun shines. Someone might say, well, why, why is he stressing this? We're all Christians. This is a Christian church. Well, that may or may not be true. It is a Christian church, but we may not all be Christians. There is no perfect church on this earth. And besides, even as Christians, you and I never grow out of our need for the gospel. We should be telling ourselves the gospel truths every day of our lives. God sends his ambassadors with the message of salvation, and the offer is made. Oh, it's an amazing offer. Do you remember a time, if you think back, when you responded to God's gracious offer? Maybe as a child, maybe as a teen, an adult. Or do you recall an experience when the offer was felt by you with more force? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Perhaps you'd never accepted those terms of salvation. And today is the day. Because whenever you and I are confronted with the offer of salvation, a door is opened. That's how scripture pictures it. And if by faith we accept the offer, we can step through the door and enter the kingdom. But if in unbelief we reject the offer, the door to the kingdom may be shut. This is one reason why preaching is described as a key of the kingdom. Maybe you've heard of that before. It's a key of the kingdom. It's the primary means by which the door of heaven is opened or shut. Young people, and I, I want to speak to you especially, this is for all people, but I think it has particular application to you. Young people, teens, especially you who grew up in the church. The time is at hand. You've been given terrific opportunities and these have been denied many other people. Angels long to look at these things. You know that as well as I do. Many prophets wanted to see them and they weren't able to do so. You've been exposed to them on a weekly basis for many years and it's a Tremendous privilege and responsibility. Jesus says, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. But as you know, with great privilege comes great responsibility. That is to say, you and I are and will be held accountable for the things of Christ that we have seen and heard. Jesus goes on to say, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. To covenant children, the ones we've seen baptized this morning, much has been given. Opportunities that have been denied other people. And those in the church may certainly aggravate their guilt by failing to make good use of this privilege. May. So I ask the question to young people, and maybe even to some adults, why would you want to wait to profess your faith? Do you believe the gospel? That's the question. 
Are you persuaded that this Jesus really is the Son of God and Savior of sinners? If so, why don't you profess your faith? If you reject Jesus, then go ahead and do so to your own peril. But if not, why wait? The longer you wait to publicly profess your faith in Jesus Christ, the more culpable you may become. God has given us golden opportunities, and only eternity will show <clears throat> just how golden they are. You've been given Christian parents and a Christian church and Christian friends. Search your heart. Examine your soul. Talk to your parents and your elders. And then in faith, embrace your birthright. It's very difficult for parents to tell their children this because they don't want to push them. But it's easy for the pulpit to proclaim it. When you do, the saints and the angels in heaven are going to rejoice. Unlike any rejoicing you've ever experienced. You see, Scripture teaches that there is one God and one mediator between God and men. And that mediator is Jesus. He's the middleman that goes between God and men, women and children. And since his mission was to reconcile God and man, he himself, we're taught, is both God and man. Makes sense. He's a middleman. And isn't it wonderful that he brings reconciliation between a holy God and sinful creatures in the work that he does? <clears throat> And we're also told that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I know we throw around that word saved all the time. You hear it on TV and in interviews and so forth, but do we actually know what saved means? There is a day of reckoning for every single human being that's ever lived. And if that eternal judge finds the least bit of guilt, if he finds the slightest sin, if he finds the smallest bit of corruption, he pours out his wrath. Do you remember what is written of the ministry of John the Baptist? He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. You'd think that'd be a good thing, wouldn't you? He says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So here he is telling the religious leaders that they were in danger of the wrath to come. Their hearts were so hardened and their case was so desperate that their ruin was almost inevitable. And the point is that there is wrath to come. That's what saved means. Christ is the only way of escape, but you have to receive him by faith. Ask him into your heart. Accept these terms of salvation and rely on him to save you. And salvation is offered freely. And you're privileged. And you're responsible. And this gospel message is to be proclaimed to all the earth, to every person. But as you and I both know, 
The word does not actually reach every ear and it doesn't go out to every person. God in his providence, I don't know why, but this is true. God in his providence so orders it that the gospel is not heard in every place. Tragically, those living in such places have no access to the means of salvation. They have no way of knowing about Jesus Christ, no way of accepting the terms of salvation. Unless the gospel is proclaimed to them, they'll die in their sins. That's what Paul means when he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Here, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, the entire entourage come into contact with the gospel. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. How they handled this opportunity would determine their destiny. And unless God gave them other opportunities, and there's no indication in Scripture that he did, this was the only one they were given. And I have to say, where they will spend eternity may have depended on that one occasion. I ran across an old Arabian proverb. I don't know who said it, but it's applicable, I think. This is what it says. Four things come back. The sped arrow, the spoken word, time past, and the neglected opportunity. You and I both know how in our lifetimes we have missed opportunities. Perhaps it was to ace the test or to win the game or to seal the deal, to make that purchase. And oftentimes these missed opportunities are difficult to handle. <clears throat> but you know something? None of them compare with the missed opportunity of salvation. Part of hell's agony, and I, as a preacher, I have to talk about hell. I'm sorry, but... This is my job. Part of hell's agony will be pondering for eternity a missed opportunity. If times of peace and prosperity fade, we may never have time to consider the offer again. And who knows, this might be your last opportunity. I recently heard someone discuss rural churches in China do you realize that those rural churches in China often meet on Sunday for 12 to 13 hours? They hear four sermons. Can you imagine? Four sermons at different times during the day, and they fellowship all day long. Now, why would they do that? Because of persecution, they realize it might be their last opportunity to hear God's word. They value public worship so much. They're so hungry for spiritual food. They'll spend the whole day together. And yet in many in America, not here, but in America, they have trouble listening to 30-minute sermons in a one-and-a-half-hour service. I want you to consider the tormented rich man who is now, we know, in anguish amid flames. He begged Lazarus, to dip his finger in the water just to cool his tongue. 
And he will spend eternity suffering the pain and remorse of a missed opportunity. Paul says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, and we are not to put off what the Spirit is prompting us to do today. Robert Manning said it this way, He that will not when he may, shall not when he will. I'll say it again. He that will not when he may, shall not when he will. That is to say, tomorrow may be too late. And I'm going to add one more thing with regard to the opportunity of salvation. You know, just as God makes a record of every rejection, so he makes a record of every neglected opportunity. John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. It doesn't matter in what context or under what circumstances it happens. God knows and he'll bring to light every rejection and all the neglect of his son. And that record will include the times and seasons of grace that he's provided. Every invitation, every outward call, every claim and line of reasoning set forth. He'll document how many years we've sat, sometimes barren, stubborn, hard-hearted. And it reminds me of that parable that was read earlier of the tree farmer's frustration over the barren fig tree. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And I think the spiritual application is clear. Unless we receive Christ and bear fruit, we're in danger of being cut down. That's hard. But God searches every heart. He sifts through every thought. He examines every motive. And no one in this room, myself included, is going to be able to stand up to that kind of scrutiny. Every single thought. The only way to stand <coughs> will be if we're found to be joined to Christ by faith. And there's no greater opportunity than to be exposed to the means of salvation. When you have a party, you don't send the invitation to everybody indiscriminately, do you? Well, if you've had a party, I've, I've not gotten my invitation, so. Only those whom the host wishes to invite receive the invitation. Well, it's no different with the gospel. It's sent by God to those whom he wishes to invite. You're those whom he wishes to invite. And the door is open. And the offer is sincere. And all you have to do is accept. But then there's a second thing, and I'll be quick on this one. It's the opportunity for sanctification because Paul's imprisonment challenged his faith and strengthened his resolve. The point is, when God brings the cross to bear upon our lives, it's an opportunity to hold fast to the faith and to be sanctified because afflictions and disappointments are catalysts for spiritual growth. They don't come arbitrarily. It's not as if they arrive by chance. Our wise Heavenly Father appoints them for our sanctification. 
As Paul says, the word of the cross, the suffering, it's folly to those who are perishing. What are you, what are you talking about, the cross? But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God for salvation. And you and I are prone to wander. We're like sheep, even after our conversion. So the Lord uses affliction in our lives to keep us on the right path. Do you remember when David was afflicted? He was being persecuted. And his conscience began to plague him because he merely cut the corner of Saul's robe. That was an adversity. But then when at peace in the palace, he commits adultery and plots the murder of Uriah in prosperity. So God sends affliction to humble us and bring us back to the path. And providence so orders things that particular sins are subdued and hearts are conformed. Do you see the troubles and difficulties and afflictions of your life as opportunities of sanctification if you're a believer? Can you recognize your hardships as expressions of fatherly care? Because God loves you more than you know. He loves you more than you love yourself. He'll train you. He'll discipline you as a faithful, loving father who cares. I'm going to close with this. One of the heaviest judgments in the Bible is to be left alone to yourself. Three times in five verses, Paul makes this staggering declaration. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. Let them go. Leave them alone. Give them over to their own desires. He withdraws his hand. He ceases to hold on to the boat as it's dragged by the current. Leave his conscience alone. Leave his family alone. Leave his health alone. Let him prosper in the world. Abandon him. Forsake him. Remove all restraints from him. Let him go. That's the worst judgment that the Bible has to offer. When a patient's situation is hopeless, we can ask Manny about this. When a patient is beyond treatment, what does the doctor do? He leaves him alone. Send him home. Let him set his house in order. We can do no more for him. Take him away. Put him in hospice care. You know something? Afflictions may seem like God's displeasure, but they are actually expressions of love because they're opportunities for sanctification. God's not leaving you alone. <laughs> Paul, David says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. God afflicts as a father in love. May God enable us to understand that and recognize it as we try to live the Christian life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunities you afford us. We've been given so much. We're thankful for the opportunity of salvation. We're thankful for the opportunity of sanctification. Give us the grace to recognize and take advantage of when opportunity knocks. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. 
For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.